You're listening to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. So I am Sean, a youth pastor. I'm not Pastor Dwayne. Sorry to disappoint you. But uh, I am going to steal his prop, even though that session, that, uh, that sermon series is over. I've been a little bit jealous of his fragile prop, so I'm going to steal it anyway. We're only like a week removed from it, right? We'll be okay. We'll be okay. But I'm really glad to be here with you all today. Uh, I, I kind of wonder, so you know, you've got Christmas, you've got the 26th, which is Boxing Day, right? It's got a special name. But what do you call the Sunday after Christmas? Is, is Sunday after, I, I don't know. I call it National Youth Pastor Preaching Day. So <laughs> it's actually kind of a, it is kind of a national thing. So I'm excited. I, I look forward to it. I enjoy spending time with, with you all here this morning. And uh, presenting the word that, that God's put on my heart. So I hope that you've had a great time uh, celebrating this season of, of hope and peace and joy and love uh, as we celebrated through Advent and, and, and reflected upon the birth of Christ. We've, we've each added new chapters to our Christmas stories and celebrated the birth of Christ with, with incredible reverence and yet with a lot of fun, right? I'm still recovering not only from the eggnog and candy canes from this last week, but from the, the bake-off we had a couple weeks ago. How much fun was that? It was so, so great. I, I uh, should not have ate all of that, but I guess that's the curse of being a judge. So. But Jesus is the gift that was unexpected. Jesus is the gift that, that's undeserved. He's the gift that not many would admit that they, that they want, but ultimately he's the gift that every single person needs. And he's given to us by a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. The ultimate perfect gift. And now, just as we're recovering from all the eggnog and candy canes, a new season, a new, new year approaches. And this time of year is always full of intrigue. It's full of excitement. As we reflect on all that's happened in this last year and all the things that are to come in the new year. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible season. It's a ton of fun. Sometimes we even set goals to, uh, to pull back that, that scale back out that Pastor Steve talked about throwing away. Sometimes we pull it back out and we decide we need to set some goals for ourselves. Uh, we call those New Year's resolutions. And uh, we, we hope to, to achieve something by this time again next year. And I want to talk a little bit about New Year's resolutions. And here's some, some statistics on those. Did you know that almost 50%, 45% of Americans set New Year's resolutions each year? And of those... About half of people say, I need to get in shape. I'm one of those people, I make the same resolution every year, and then another year comes around, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to pull that one back out. I don't need to set any new goals. I'm going to keep on that one. Uh, also, about 50% of people say that they need to save money. They need to put more money away into savings, uh, do a better job of, of uh, kind of limiting expenses, uh, Another 25% of people say they, need, they, they want to travel more, uh, they want to read more books, learn new skills and hobbies. These are all great goals, great aspirations. Uh, if you're doing the math on these, these numbers, though, I'm, I'm this kind of person. Those don't add up to 100%. They add up to about 175%. And let me explain that a little bit. Some of you are, all, uh, some of you are, are overachievers, and you're going to try and save money while taking more vacations and losing weight all at the same time. And uh, please stop. You're messing up my statistics, and you make me feel bad for only setting one goal each year. So just please quit making me look bad. 
I'm also a person who wants to know why things are the way that they are. Why do we do things like give a thumbs up in approval? I want to know why we do things like dress our kids up in scary outfits and let them go knock on strangers' doors once a year begging for candy. Like, why do we do these things? The things that we just kind of just do in our everyday lives, why do we do them? And so we ask, when we ask that question about New Year's resolutions, we actually find that it has a pretty long history, a pretty extended history, uh, uh, and, and we see that, that it started with the ancient Babylonians. Now, if you've read through your Bible, you've heard of these people before, and they had a, a, a history, a ritual of every spring either, either anointing a new king or reaffirming um, their, their old king, their current king, and at the same time uh, committing to pay back debts and return anything that has been borrowed. Now, the Romans came along, and they like to steal everybody's ideas and kind of mishmash everything together. And so they took this idea, and they said, well, I don't like the springtime. Let's anoint the new year as January 1st. And so they did that, and they kind of followed a similar belief where they would uh, be penitent upon, about things that had happened in the last year, things that they had done wrong, and, and that they would decide that they're going to do better in the, in the new year. And uh, then us early Christians came along and, and kind of adopted some of their beliefs. And they ad- we adopted the date of the, new, the Roman New Year. And uh, we, we began to, to resolve to do better in the future. It was kind of how the early Christians uh, handled this, this idea of new, year, new Year's resolutions. A resolve to do better in the future. Despite its traditions, the tradition's religious roots, though, New Year's resolutions today are a largely secular tradition. And... Uh, we, we've, instead of making resolutions to God about things that we're going to do in the new year to better uh, ourselves and better our relationship with him, and we, we largely focus on much more self-improvement and, and, and focusing on, on things that, that are separate from God. But I kind of like the way that the early Christians did it, and so we're going to focus on that a little bit here today. Every Sunday morning, I, I meet, well, almost every Sunday morning. This morning we didn't. But almost every Sunday morning, I get to meet with, uh, with a large number of our students uh, over in, in our multi-purpose building, and we talk through different topics, different questions, sometimes issues that are facing our society, and I like to ask three questions. First of all, what does culture have to say about this topic or this question or this issue? What's, what's going on in the media? What would the people at your school, the, the people in your families, your friends, what would they say about this? And that's kind of what we've looked at a little bit in the history of New Year's resolutions. And the second part of that is, what does the Bible have to say about this topic or this issue or this, this current event that's going on? And when we look at what the Bible has to say about new things, we come across a lot. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of them, but here's a few. Back in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob receives a new name and a new identity from God. He's no longer known as the deceiver, the ankle grabber, but he's known as the God wrestler. Israel. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, we see that, but, that those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. In Lamentations, we see that his mercies are new every morning. And then we come across this thing called the New Testament. Anybody ever heard of it? <laughs> and in the New Testament, there's a new covenant, a new agreement between us and God, a covenant in the blood of Jesus because of his body that was broken for us. 
Jesus also goes on to give his disciples a new commandment in John chapter 13, to love one another as he has loved them. A, a commandment that's second only to loving God himself. We go on and we see that we can experience a new relationship with God because Jesus has made us friends with God. And that new relationship gives us an opportunity to live a new life. It ushers on a new way of living according to the Spirit. But God's not done with new things here. We, as we look at Romans chapter 8, we see a, 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 an idea of what our time in heaven will be like as we, as we enter into new bodies with, with, with Jesus and, and we're separate from, from sin and suffering. Those are gone. And then since these bodies that we live in are temporary anyway, Paul instructs us in chapter 12 of Romans to give our bodies to God as living and holy sacrifices. Not allowing ourselves to get caught up in the behavior and the customs of this world, but to allow God to transform us in a new people by changing the way that we think. Needless to say, the Bible has a lot to say about new things. And I think it gives us a pretty good glimpse at God's heart and his desire to make old things new again, to renew what maybe has been broken, what maybe has, has, uh, has grown old. But there's a passage that I would like to focus on today that we haven't yet mentioned, and it's found in the book of Ephesians. You're welcome to stay seated, but I'm going to invite you to read this along with me today. Ephesians chapter 4. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I think it's fair to say that Paul's addressing a group of people here who have allowed themselves to be conformed to the patterns of the world around them. When Paul uses the term Gentiles, he's describing a group of people whose minds have been closed and whose hearts have been hardened toward God. And he goes on to say the symptoms of such a life are confusion, darkness, wandering, no sense of shame, and eagerly practicing impurity. And he says, stop! These people that you're following, they have been blinded. Their hearts have been hardened to me, to their sin. They've wandered so far from God that they no longer feel any remorse for the things that they do. And then Paul goes on to remind them that they've been taught a new way of living, a different way of life in Christ. And what Paul does next in this, in this passage, what he does in a lot of his writings, is one of the reasons why he's one of the people I'm probably most looking forward to getting a coffee with in heaven. Is he, Paul is a highly educated man. And yet he didn't use his education, he didn't use his experience as a Pharisee to, to write a, a long list of, of 101 reasons or 101 ways to not live like a Gentile. He didn't burden the people down with, with more rules. Instead, he, he simplified everything. And it's so simple, in fact, that I'm going to invite up a friend of mine to help me illustrate it. 
Paul, would you mind helping me out today? Paul's going to come up and help me out. And, yeah. Awesome. So this is actually going to serve a couple purposes. We're going to illustrate something here. But in addition to that, this is also kind of a, a fashion show of the items in the youth lost and found. So if you see something that belongs to your child, please let me know. Uh, other than this black one that's on the back here, everything is from the youth lost and found. So Paul, would you mind putting this, this on for me today? This is a little bit big for you, I know. You'll grow into it pretty soon. It's pretty big. How does it feel? Is it comfy? <laughs> it's a little big on you, huh? All right, so what we're going to do today is, is imagine that this coat represents the old self. Paul mentions that we're to throw off the old self, that we're to remove it. And, and he really makes it simple because we can kind of picture this in something like a sweatshirt or a coat. Now, this old self, sometimes we, we like to fill the pockets with, with things like guilt and shame for the things that we've done. It begins to, to weigh us down. It begins to burden us. And, and something kind of crazy happens when we take it off that we feel lighter. But Paul uses very specific words in this passage. And so, go, Paul, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take this off. And now I need you to throw it as far as you can. Just, oh man, that was awesome. Good job. Good job. All right, you can go ahead and go sit down. I appreciate your help. Man, this guy's great. <laughs> and he happens to have the same name as the writer of the book that we're studying, Ephesians. How great is that? I think as adults, sometimes we complicate things, right? We read a passage like, like this, and, and, we, and we try to analyze it so deeply that we miss the simple meaning. And we need somebody like, like Paul to help us understand what's, what's going on here. See, the writer Paul doesn't waste words. He doesn't expand on things uh, in a way that, that is unnecessary. He says, throw off your old sinful nature and your, your former way of life. Just like we saw here a minute ago, throw it off. There's nothing nice and neat about this. We're not putting our old nature on a hanger and hanging it in the closet. I didn't ask Paul to take it off and put it back up here to save for later. We're not trying to keep it nice and clean. We're not sending it to the dry cleaners to get pressed. We are to violently throw it away from us in a way that creates as much separation as possible. Paul did a great job of that, throwing it as far away as he could, creating as much separation between him and his former way of life as possible. And I like the way the message paraphrase communicates this. Starting in verse 20 says, But that's no life for you. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. I accepted Jesus into my life. I made a decision to, to follow him uh, on April 21st of 2003. And it was near the end of my sophomore year in high school, and I had some anger issues. I, I don't mean just like normal, like teenager, chemical imbalance, like angst type stuff. I'm talking about like I was not a nice person, okay? Mom, you can plug your ears. You don't have to hear this part. <laughs> but I was, not a, I was not a nice person. I had some, some anger issues. And that very same night that 
I decided I wanted to follow Jesus, I felt like God was telling me I needed to get rid of my CDs. Okay, now the music I was listening to was not the sole problem in my life. It was not the sole root of my anger, but it definitely wasn't helping things either. The music I was listening to was a little bit angry. It was perpetuating some of my, my tendencies. And so I took my entire CDs, my CD collection, and put them in the garbage can outside. And I went to bed. Now, I had a decent job in high school. All my friends would hang out with me because I'd buy them movie tickets and take them places. Uh, but I spent most of my money on food, on clothing, and on music. And so when I woke up the next morning and realized I had just thrown away almost $2,000 worth of CDs at 15 years old, I kind of freaked out. I was like, uh, I need to get those back right now. Like, okay, maybe I'm not supposed to have them anymore, but maybe I could give them to somebody else, right? I mean, I already spent the money on them. Maybe I could sell them. I don't, I, I just, all these thoughts racing through my mind. So I ran outside around the side of the house to where the garbage can usually was. And to my surprise, it wasn't there. Garbage can was gone. Pretty quickly though, almost immediately, I heard a very distinct sound. The sound of a garbage truck. And so I ran out to the curb, opened the lid, and it was empty. And I realized I was about 90 seconds too late, and my CDs were completely gone. And I imagine that God was probably kind of amused at this time, maybe even giggling a little bit, as he watched this piece of my old self be hauled away in the back of his garbage truck. Gone forever. The truth is, though, I wasn't even mad. I wasn't even disappointed that they were gone. There was a part of me that was relieved because there was no hope of me getting it back. It was gone for good. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. The music that we listen to, the music or or the movies or the TV shows that we watch, the places that we used to go, the people that we used to associate with, The way that we allow social media to affect us, to influence our lives, the the patterns and the rhythms of our everyday life. Nothing is off limits when it comes to separating ourselves or distancing ourselves from the sin that so easily entangles us. So we throw off the old self, and now we're coatless. When Paul went back to his seat, he didn't have a new coat. But we don't stop here. There's more to the instruction. There's another step. See, throwing off the old isn't enough. We also need to put on the new. And this passage in the message goes on to say, and then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. And this part of the story reminds me of of a story I heard growing up as a child. It's a story called The Emperor's New Clothes. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. If you aren't, that's okay. I'm going to give you a short summary of of this story. Uh, There once was an emperor who was so fond of of dressing nicely that he spent all of his money on, on nice clothes. Many, many travelers came through the town that he lived in, that that he oversaw. And uh, one day, a couple swindlers came into town. They saw the the emperor dressed nicely, and so they approached him and said, Sir, we are weavers, 
And we're capable of weaving the most magnificent fabrics that you've ever seen. Not only are our patterns and our techniques exquisite, but our, our, our clothing has the unique quality that it will become invisible to anybody in your kingdom who is unfit of service. And so the emperor thought, well, that's great. I have to have these clothes. Not only will they be brilliant looking, but I'll be able to know who in my kingdom is unfit of service. Who in my kingdom is unfit of working under me. And so he paid the swindlers a large sum of money, and they began their work. The swindlers set up two large looms, and they pretended to weave. They asked for all the finest silks and all the oldest threads, all of which went into their traveling bags as they continued to work on the empty looms. Fast forward in the story, they've extorted more money, more resources out of the emperor, and they have continued to work on their empty looms, and now they're done. Now they're ready to provide the emperor with his new clothing. And so they come out, and they lift up their arms like they're holding something up, and one piece at a time, the emperor's advisors help him get dressed in his new clothing. Now the, em- the emperor and his advisors, none of them could see anything, but they were all too ashamed to say it because they didn't want to be deemed unworthy of their positions. So instead, here's what they did. They threw a, a large parade for the emperor and said, let's go parade him around the town and show everybody his brand new clothing. So as he wandered through the town, the villagers said, oh, look at the emperor's new clothing. Isn't it splendid? I've never seen something like it in my life. That is everyone except for one small child. Children have a tendency of telling the truth, don't they? And the small child said, what do you mean? I don't see anything. The emperor's naked. And pretty soon, the rest of the village agreed. The emperor wasn't wearing new clothing. The emperor had been swindled, and he was naked. When we attempt to shortcut the process by taking off the old self and never putting on the new self, we are swindling ourselves out of the life and the relationship that Jesus wants to give us. Maybe that looks like making a choice to follow Jesus, but then being unwilling to pay the cost of being his disciple. Or maybe that looks like wanting to be a part of a family or a community like this one. And instead of committing fully to, to, to Christ, we, we try to modify our behaviors to, to look and act like what we think the people around us expect. But Jesus isn't a part of it. God didn't send his son to die on a cross so that we would act better. Jesus came so that we would be better. By the transforming, transforming of our hearts through relationship with him and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, removing the old self can have the appearance of a changed life. But putting on the new self transforms us from the inside out. And it reveals itself in our conduct as God brings our character into alignment with his. That is to say, when we're following Jesus and and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to renew our thoughts and our attitudes, then our lives will bear the fruit of righteousness and holiness, just as Paul mentions in Ephesians 4. And the Holy Spirit is a vital part of this process because on our own, our righteousness is like filthy rags. But when we put the new self on, it's no longer our righteousness that we wear, but the righteousness of Jesus. So other than this passage containing the word new in it, 
What does this have to do with New Year's resolutions or the new year in general? Here's my thoughts. We like to look at our journeys toward God, our journeys with Jesus as, as kind of a, a sum of, of a few large events. We like to point back at a time in third grade and we were in kids' church and we accepted Jesus into our lives or the time that we were at summer camp and God spoke to us in a way that we didn't expect, a way that we didn't know that he even could. Or we like to point at the time that our friend or our coworker or a family member invited us to church and every single word that the pastor spoke seemed to be meant directly for us. And not to discredit those things or minimize them, they're important events in our lives. Oftentimes they're the anchors that we hold on to when life gets difficult. But a walk with Jesus, a journey with Jesus is, a, is about much more than just a few large events. It's about the everyday journey. A resolution to walk forward with Jesus every day. See, we don't throw off the old sinful nature just once, and we don't put on the new self just once. It's an everyday decision to press deeper into relationship with God who created us and loves us immensely. So our resolution, my resolution, is to walk forward with Jesus every day. I like what John Maxwell has to say. He says, you'll never change your life until you change something you do daily. The secret of your success is found in your daily routine. I think those are powerful words. The truth is, it's a spoiler, you're going to fail. It's going to happen. It might happen on the very first day of the new year. You might make great plans, and day one, right out of the gate, you trip and stumble. I kind of picture a horse coming out of the gate for a race and tripping over its own hooves and falling face first in the dirt. It's going to happen. You're going to fail. Maybe not the first day, but eventually. There will be days you don't live up to the commitment or resolution that you're making to God. Sometimes the alarm goes off a little bit late or doesn't go off at all. And you wake up and, and instead of spending time with God, you're in a panic and in a rush to get out of the door and get to school or get to work on time. Oops. Or sometimes that struggle or addiction that you thought was behind you sneaks back in and you mess up. You stumble. Sometimes, probably more often than I'd like to admit when I'm driving in Seattle, that anger that used to consume me sneaks back in. And to be honest, it's a little scary sometimes. Like, oh, I thought that was gone 15 years ago. But there it is. Driving in Seattle will do that to me, I guess. Be careful. But let me encourage you that there's a difference between having a moment of failure in our journeys with Jesus and choosing to walk a path that's separate from him. Those are very different. And that's sometimes the problem with resolutions. We feel like one failure disqualifies us from the journey, but the truth is that Jesus never disqualifies us. He continually welcomes us back in. I once had a friend of mine tell me that uh, God isn't disappointed when I fail, but he rejoices because that's one less failure left before I get things right. Now, I don't know how theologically correct that is. Probably not very. But I know that his, his mercies are new every day. His word does tell us that. 
And I know that he takes great pleasure in spending time with us any chance he gets. So take it easy on yourself. Give yourself a little bit of grace. When you stumble, get back up. So the question today is, where do you, where do you go from here? Maybe your response is, what relationship? This idea of a life with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, taking off the old and putting on the new sounds great, but you've never made that decision. I'm going to invite our prayer teams to step out, and we'll have prayer teams available on the sides, up in the balcony, and these are people that, that genuinely love people, that genuinely want to give you the best opportunity you can to make a decision for Jesus today and to encourage you to continue with the small footsteps every other day. So maybe that's your response. You're interested in experiencing the new life that Christ is offering, but you've never taken the step of acknowledging your need for him. And I invite you to, to, to visit our prayer teams today some people who would love to talk to you about this big moment. For some others, maybe the answer is to challenge yourself a little bit this year. Your walk with Jesus is good, but could it be better? Probably. So what are some areas in your life that that you could stretch yourself a little bit, stretch your faith, step out a little bit, and, and share your story with somebody else? What are some areas that you can grow? Or maybe you fall somewhere in between that. You've been following Jesus for a while, and and, and things were good, but what was once a wellspring of life is kind of looking more like a dry creek bed now. And you're wondering, why is that? What's, what's happened? Maybe it's just time to shake things up a little bit. Maybe it's time for a new reading plan or a new devotional book. Maybe it's, maybe it's time to, to, to take a little bit more time out of your busy day and just slow down, spend time with him. Maybe it's time to remind yourself of his love for you and about the dreams that he's given you. Those are just some of the ways that a dry relationship can come to life again. Maybe your response today is to, to reflect upon the new covenant. The new covenant that we have in the blood of Jesus. We, take, we offer communion up here in the front, also in the balcony, and it's an opportunity to reflect upon the body and the blood of Jesus, broken and poured out for us on the cross. A new covenant between us and God that gives us the opportunity to come into relationship with him, to be forgiven. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of those things today. Regardless of where you are in your journey, there's room for growth. Here's the part we don't like, though. The path to where we want to be is never a bullet train, although I'd like to ride one of those someday. It seems like it would be awesome. But the journey to where we're, we're going, the journey to where we want to be, is more often a walking trail. One intentional footstep in front of the other. When we choose to follow Jesus each day of our lives. Let's pray and, and worship some more together. Lord, we are just so grateful for your love for us. We are so grateful that, Lord, when we stumble, when we fall, that you don't look down at us with contempt or, or with disappointment even, but you extend your hand as we saw you do with Peter on the waves to pull him right back up and say, why did you doubt me? Come on, let's walk together. Lord, today I pray that, that you would be speaking to each one of us. Lord, my, my words fall short, but Lord, yours, 
penetrate hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you'd be speaking to each and every one of us, asking us, where are you in, in your relationship with me? What's the next step? Where can you grow? Where can you commit something else that you've been holding back for me in your life? Lord, we just thank you for your, your faithfulness that you don't just forgive us once or twice, but hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of times because you desire relationship with us. Lord, just continue to speak to us during this time where we choose to move out and respond in different ways or stay in our chairs and talk to you or to worship together. We love you. 